Welcome to the Real Estate Raw Show, hosted by Joe Mendoza. What's up, guys? Joe Mendoza here in sunny San Diego. Welcome to my show. Today, ladies and gentlemen, I have Miss Jennifer Perkins. She's on a major, major tear right now. We're going to be talking about storage units. We're going to be talking a little bit about mobile home parks. Incredible, incredible success happening right now with this amazing individual and the best is yet to come. We're going to be talking about some of her big goals as well. There's a lot, a lot to learn on today's show. Guys, if you love what you're watching, share, smash that subscribe button, share with a friend, take plenty of notes, and let's sit back and enjoy the show. Hey, Jennifer, welcome so much to our show. How are you doing? I'm good, Joe. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. So my audience usually likes to hear, you know, the background of our guests. So tell us their story. Before real estate, who is Jennifer? Yeah, so Jennifer wore a lot of hats before real estate while hoping to get into real estate. I, I grew up in the small town of Dixon, Tennessee, just west of Nashville, and didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just know I wanted to be successful at something. So I kind of researched a lot of different things, thought about being a business owner. Eventually, I went to business school and I got my master's in business. But in the meantime, I'm working. I worked for the Army. I lived in Germany about six years, and while I was living in Germany, that was whenever I actually first learned about real estate investing. I, uh, I wasn't much of a reader, but I had a flight from, uh, let's see, where is it in Germany? You fly out of, uh, I can't remember exactly, but it was a long flight. It was like a seven to nine hour flight to go back and forth from Germany to the yes, and I decided to buy a book to read. And it was the book, Why We Want You to Be Rich by Donald Trump and Robert Kiyosaki. I see you've got uh, Robert Kiyosaki right there behind you, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So that wasn't my first book, the Why We Want You to Be Rich was. And that was a total mindset change for me to read that book because before reading that, I thought that for you to have a dollar, that meant for me to have one less dollar. I didn't have an abundance mindset. I had a scarcity mindset. And so I got that book. I read it. Didn't know if it was going to be good or bad, but I couldn't put it down. And it just totally changed the way I viewed money and abundance. And then my understanding of real estate and real estate investing. So I said, I've got to read all the books in the back that are recommended. And I started with Robert Kiyosaki's book. So I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which usually is most people's first real estate book. And I actually studied real estate investing for about 10 years before getting into my first real estate investment. So that was about six years ago. I uh, did some house hacking. Uh, then, you know, just a high level overview, I did some house hacking, I did my first self storage development, not having a clue what I was doing, not having any money or experience, learned a lot of lessons. Uh, my husband and I work together as a team, we build houses, sometimes we flip houses, we do land development, um, we're trying to get focused on self storage acquisition and we do self storage development, we own a, a trailer park now we've got our hands in all kinds of different things and so that's that's a kind of a high level overview of how I got into real estate and the things that I've been doing over the last few years. Wow, that's awesome, Jennifer. So I'd love to unpack that a little bit. There's kind of so much there. So you were in the military? Were you active? You retired? What was kind of the transition from military to real estate? 
So I actually wasn't in the military. I worked for the military, for the army as a civilian employee. I worked in security um, and I did that for about five and a half years while I lived in Germany. And so, you know, I, when you work for the government, I don't know if you've ever worked for the government, but when you work for the government, you're pretty well the gospel, right? You go by a book of regulations and whatever it says is what everyone follows. There's no sales in, in government, right? If I say, if the book says this and I'm in charge of the book, you do what the book says. Like, I don't have to be nice about it. If you've ever dealt with any kind of government funding funded <laughs> entity, you know that's true. I'm right? laughing so hard because <laughs> believe it or not, Jennifer, when I was at San Diego State trying to figure things out, I actually took on a like an internship to be a government worker. So I was like a GS3 or something like that uh -huh. in college. And I'm like, you're exactly right on point. And that's kind of got under my skin. That's why I took a different direction. Yes. It, it's, I enjoyed that, right? I didn't know anything about sales, you know, and I under I knew how to read the rules and follow them and explain that to others. So I really enjoyed that job. But when I moved back to the U.S., I tried to get another government job. You can only take so many terms overseas and you have to come back to the U.S. So my goal was to get a job in the U.S. for a term and then go back, you know, to Japan or something like that. Well, I couldn't find a job that I was truly qualified for. I had a master's in business, but do, you know, you can use that in a lot of different ways, but it's normally in a corporate setting and you normally don't get your MBA and then go find a job. So it wasn't working out very well for me. Um, and I ended up, I, I worked several jobs, but I ended up for the longest period of time working in insurance, selling insurance for State Farm. And that is where I had to get a sales coach and I had to learn how to sell because it was two totally different worlds to be a government employee and then to have to sell something to someone. So that was a, a total change in my life. And I learned a lot of really valuable things from both sides that I've been able to apply to real estate. That's awesome, Jennifer. Thanks for clarifying. Now, you said, I think, 10 years of studying before you pulled the trigger and got your first deal? Yes, yeah. So I am one of those uh, overanalyzers who wants to know everything about everything before I actually do it. And that's not the best way. Like, that works for some people. Um, and that's why my husband and I are a great team, because he's what I call a gunslinger. Like, he wants to go do, do, do. And I want to stop and research, research, research. And so together, you know, we create a good balance. But, uh, you know, I read my first book uh, that, you know, why we want you to be rich. And then I started reading more and more books. I bought the cash flow games, got involved in bigger pockets, you know, studied, studied until finally, you know, pulled the trigger and started investing. And then after that, it was just took off. Nice, nice. And what was your first asset that you actually acquired as an investor, not just like a homeowner? Yeah, so I, a flip, you know, if I was working on flips at the same time as I was working on our self storage development, because that's not a fast project. So I was trying to figure out self storage while flipping houses. What kind of gave you that bug to pursue self storage? You know, it really, I really just kind of fell into it. I didn't understand the asset at all. I didn't know there was such a demand for it. I didn't know it was resilient. I didn't, I didn't know what a cap rate was. I didn't know any of that, but I bought a house on an old rundown farm, an eight acre farm. And I knew that I wasn't meant to be a farmer. So because I wasn't going to be farming, I had to figure out like, what can I do with this? You know, do I build more houses? Do I just 
you know, clean it up and sell it. And it was on a busy highway and had great commercial potential. So then I explored further and asked, you know, people in the community, well, what would you do? You know, what do you think belongs here? And I kept hearing people say self-storage, self-storage. And I didn't know anything about self-storage, but I started learning and figuring it out and, you know, just moving one step at a time, you know, through rezoning, we'll get a survey, a rezoning, you know, get the plans together, all that until, you know we actually have a self-storage facility now wow that's awesome so the property i think on your facebook or the advertisements that you put out there that was a ground up construction that you built yes wow that's amazing how many um square footage how many what different sizes i think i went on your website poked around a little bit how how big is it yeah, so phase one, it's a multi-phase project, and phase one is 31,000 some odd square feet net rentable square footage, which is 223 drive-up units, and then there's like 20-something parking spots, and we prepared it, so the parking area was the preparation for phase two, which we're working on now. We're going to add another 300 units, 60-something uh, parking spots, and that 60-something parking spots will be in preparation for a future phase three, which will be well on down the road because it's going to take about three years to stabilize this expansion. Wow, that's amazing. I'm not sure if he'd be pretty open, but uh, earlier you said, hey, open open book. Um, could we go through some of the numbers? Because I actually have somebody who's considering that. She's uh, out in North Carolina and she's sitting on about nine acres. Some of it is not buildable. You know, where would somebody start? Because I said, hey, you know what? You might want to get like a soils engineer, do a phase one, EIR report, stuff like that. Am I pointing her in the right direction or is there other market and feasibility studies before that? Yeah, first it's, you know, what is possible? What's the current zoning? And with that, you know, is self-storage possible? If not, is the municipality favorable for getting a rezoning? What do the neighbors say? You know, they may have a lot of input on what is possible, depending on if it's a small town or whatnot. And then what is feasible? Yes, if you want to do development, you absolutely should get a feasibility study done. And so there are many companies that do this. You can Google self-storage feasibility study, and probably the first few that show up will be, you know, pretty reputable ones. It's going to so you first, before you do that, you can call around and see, are the other facilities full? If so, that's a good indicator that, you know, you have a good chance. Is it possible? Is the zoning there? If so, you know, then go through part one of a feasibility study, which could be like two or $3,000. And that tells you like, is there some demand there? If so, then you can move forward with the full feasibility study, which can be like six to $8,000. And that's going to be like a 150 page document. And it's going to tell you, I mean, it's going to be your blueprint to success. It's going to have a pro forma built out over seven to 10 years and tell you exactly what unit mix you should put in and how many square foot per month you should be uh, leasing and what your break even point is going to be and where you should be stabilized, when you should do a cash out refinance. If you don't know what you're doing, if you've never done it, it's going to be so helpful. I refer back to my original one all the time. That's awesome, Jennifer. Now, what kind of budget should somebody put aside or do, should they go straight to construction loan? Maybe share with the audience or my friend that's actually thinking about doing that. 
So can you expand on that question a little bit? What kind of budget are you saying? Like, what should it cost per square foot or? Yeah, well, just the startup cost. So, you know, you got to do obviously the reports mm -hmm. and then you got to set some money aside for construction. Um, she has a land, so she doesn't need to purchase a land. You guys had the land as well. But like how much upfront costs? And then is it 20% down, 30% down for construction? Okay. What's kind of like the chron chronological order as far as budgeting and money set aside. Okay, I understand the question now. So for me, what I had to pay out, out of pocket before the loan started kicking in for the phase one was I had to pay for the feasibility study, you know, which like I said, can be up to $8,000. And then I think probably a lot of times it'll be included in your closing, but I had to pay out of pocket for the appraisal, which I think was three or $4,000. Um, depending on how fast your loan is funding, you're going to have a lot of soft costs, depending on what type of storage facility you're building. If it's like I'm doing a multi-story now, climate controlled, you're going to have a lot more soft costs than you would have if you were just doing drive up buildings where, you know, things are pretty simple and basic. So if you, if your loan is, you know, ready to fund, then, you know, they can pay for that stuff. You can budget for that to be paid out of your loan. If not, you just need to figure out, you know, who's going to need to be paid before my, my loan funds. And then as far as your equity injection into the loan, there are several options. So if she owns the land and owns it free and clear, and usually there's a seasoning period, like you have to have owned it for six months or a year, you can put that down as your down payment instead of putting money down. That's what I did. And that's a great way to go about it. Now, if you don't have land to put down, maybe you're acquiring the land and the construction, then there are different options. You know, like with your local community bank, you could get a conventional with 20% down, it's pretty standard. Sometimes maybe you could get 15% down. You can get an SBA loan, SBA 7A loan, which is small business administration loan and do 10% down. And that's a really good one. And it's a really good one because not only do you get to put down a small down payment, but there's gonna be extra measures to build in stability into the loan to make sure that your project's gonna work. For instance, they're gonna make sure that interest payments are built in. They're gonna make sure that your operating capital is built in, and they're gonna be closely monitoring to make sure things are going as they should to ensure that you don't mess this up because it's very easy to mess up a development project if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, that sounds good. Jennifer, thanks so much for sharing that. Now, from conception, where you actually did all the reports and a little bit of the main due diligence to actually starting to put the foundation and getting it built up, what was like the time frame? Was it a year, three years, two months? What was kind of like that phase there? How long did it take? Yeah, one of the things that hold up the timeline a lot is zoning. If you're having to get a rezoning and the entitlement process, it depends on the municipality on what their timeline is like and how much opposition that you have as far as the time goes. For us in our county, it was in the county, not in the city. It's a three-month process from the point that you turn in the application. So before that, you've got to have your survey. In some places, maybe that's not required, but it probably, I mean, you're going to have to have a survey. So 
that alone can take a couple months with the way things are with surveyors just being so busy. And then you go through, you know, for us, the three point process of the first hearing, which is where the commissioners come together with you and hear what you're trying to do and they vote on it moving forward or failing. And then you're going to have a public hearing, which is really the scariest part, because that's when all the community comes out and tells you how they really feel about it. And self-storage is still, you know, the redheaded stepchild of development because people think of self-storage and they think of C-class self-storage, the older stuff from the 80s that's gravel and weedy and barbed wire fencing. And that's just not self-storage of today. Today, we're building multi-story. We're putting beautiful frontage that looks more like retail and that's self-storage of today. So if you're developing self-storage and you're building the ugly stuff, you need to stop because that's not where people want to put their stuff. And then the third month is the final vote, you know, based on everything that's happened in the last two months, you know, do we vote for you to move forward on the rezoning? Now, this is in what part of town again, your storage? So it's, mine's in the county outside of the city limits in Dixon County. In Tennessee, correct? Yes. Okay. So this is your first one. It's not like you went out of state and, and dealt with other jurisdictions. Correct. Yes, Got yes. It. And most people do not recommend that you do development for your first self storage deal. And I think that's probably good advice. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> well, I'm glad you shared that because I like to like be pretty transparent here, especially for the audience who's kind of exploring multiple different assets classes. Uh, looking back, maybe what was something you would advise differently if somebody was kind of following down your footsteps or your you're um, traveling your same road. Oh man, I could uh, do a whole episode just on that. But um, one of the key things is this being my first development like this, I really wanted to, I really wanted it to be an asset for the community. And I still do, but I sacrificed, or I just, I just, I think it was a poor choice of me to just choose local uh, to try to support just within my town whenever it would have made more sense for me to use the resources from like the Tennessee self storage Association, bring in possibly out-of-state contractors to help me and that sort of thing that they do this all year long on a regular basis. I would have asked for more references. You know, I've definitely paid a lot of tuition into the School of Hard Knocks for having just trusted people to do what they said they were going to do. You still have to very thoroughly manage it and you need to bring in third party experts. If you don't know what to be looking for, you better be paying for somebody to come in and look for it for you during the process, not when it's all said and done. That's awesome. Great, great advice. Now. For marketing, trying to fill up the units, I noticed I think you have storage pug. Uh, you, I'm sure being analytical, uh, you probably looked at ESS. What's the difference? I mean, why did you go down that road versus like ESS? Yeah, so Easy Storage Solutions is ESS and they have like a website through their software, which is, you know, what's used to rent the units and collect payments and that sort of thing. I just didn't think that the look was what I was going for. I want a very seamless, 
only a few clicks to get where you're needing to go. What I found whenever I was researching other storage facilities is I couldn't figure, I couldn't find what I was looking for. I'm looking here, I'm looking there, I'm learning about their history. I just want to know what it costs for a 10 by 10. And so I just, of all the different platforms in the storage industry for a website, I couldn't find one that made sense except for storage pug. Now it's more expensive. You know, but you get what you pay for. It's very seamless. It's a beautiful design. It's only a few clicks from any part of the website to get where you really need to go. And so because I don't have a full time manager on site that can sit there and be like, read this and sign here. Yeah, I want people to be able to go to my website and it's very easy and they don't have to call and ask a million questions. So that was my goal. And that's what I got whenever I went with Storage Pug. That's awesome. Thank you. Now, you also have an RV park or a mobile home park. What, what, what was the other asset you purchased? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I, we bought a few weeks ago a small mobile home park. It's just six mobile homes in a house on six point something acres. And we're not interested in being mobile home park investors. The reason we actually bought it is because we plan to redevelop it into self-storage. That's our ultimate goal. Um, but it needs a lot, a lot uh, to get there, including a rezoning with a variance and you know will that work I don't know you know I have to try and there's a lot of different things that could happen that could stop it and it ends up staying mobile homes and that's okay too but the goal is to turn it into self-storage got it got it I was kind of curious I saw you holding the key on Facebook I'm like Ooh. yeah 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 everyone was like why did she buy that she doesn't say anything about wanting mobile home parks and I don't you know fortunately I have a fantastic property manager who's handling all the things that I couldn't possibly handle myself got it got it awesome so is the goal now to keep accumulating storage uh, facilities building staying in that lane or are you going to start shifting focus maybe later? What's kind of the, the overall big goal? Yeah, the big goal is to really focus on self-storage, which is, you know, you met me at the self-storage event with Scott Myers. We ended up joining, joining his mastermind and his program because, and everyone was like, I don't know why you need to, to do that because you already know so much about storage. Well, I know a lot about self-storage development, but I don't know a lot about self-storage acquisitions. And I want to be able to look at a deal and in my mind, be able to put some numbers together and then go into the computer and fully underwrite it and be looking at deals all the time. Because what we really want to do, because what makes the most sense for us is to buy more storage and development, just naturally land development it's just a passion of mine. So I can come up with development projects for self-storage and everything else all day long. I mean, I literally dream about this at night. I'm not even lying, but I can't go, I can't grow as fast as we want to grow without acquiring existing facilities. So our goal is to add another 500,000 square foot of net rentable space to our portfolio of self-storage in the next five years. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Now, are you planning to do it via syndication, private money? What's kind of uh, conventional? What's kind of the strategy as far as financing? Yeah, so I am still terrified of doing a syndication because people that invest with me know that I care so much about their money that I would work third shift at the Taco Bell to make sure that they get their money back. 
And so I have a lot of people that trust us to invest with us to help their money grow. And then they're just totally passive and not involved in the decisions. And then we're making the decisions that works great, but you can only grow so fast doing that um, until you have to do a syndication. Right. And so I'm actually in another mastermind where I'm learning all the ins and outs of syndication and it's geared toward multifamily, but those systems you can take and apply them to any, you know, commercial assets. So in the future, I probably will do syndications, but I'm going to get the experience first on a little bit smaller scale with acquisitions and, you know, buying some hairy deals and fixing them up and, you know, going through the full process before I would ever be willing to do a, you know, $10 million syndication, for instance. Got it. Got it. So from when you started to where you are today, it was just personal money, not like yeah. family friends. Right. Yeah. So our self-storage facility, you know, we used, so just to go back a little bit, we, when we bought that farm, that house with the farm, I didn't even have good enough credit to get a mortgage. I had to get seller financing for two years. And I literally just about had to beg this guy to give me seller financing and convince him that I was trustworthy because I didn't have the money and I couldn't get the loan to buy it. And so what we did was fixed up the house because it was in really bad condition, like literally had a squirrel living inside of it before we moved in because he was an out of towner, which is kind of back and forth. They had smoked in there for 50 years. And so I had to use like the surf pro chemicals to clean the nicotine off the wall. So it was livable, like it was rough. So we fixed it up and then we refinanced him out in 10 months instead of two years because he wanted his money to move on. And I respected that, got his money back. And then with the cash out refi is what we actually use to pay for the uh, feasibility study and the appraisal. So literally that project has infinite returns even now and we'll cash out refi phase one to do the expansion. But um, I kind of went off on a tangent there. What was the original question? Oh, oh yeah. money. Yes. So there was that. Uh, and we used hard money loans. Originally, we were paying 12% interest to hard money lenders for our flips. And we burned some proper properties by uh, renovate, rent, refi. We did that and gained a you know small rental portfolio. And then we've only ever partnered on one deal that I can think of. We did that on a new construction house recently. And I'm not sharing this because people should expect these type of returns with us, but this person actually doubled their money in eight months with us, which was fantastic for him and us. That was great experience. And now we are taking on more private money partners and we do seller carry back. You know, if the seller wants to carry back, that's what we did with the mobile home park. Couldn't get a mortgage on that because that deal was way too hairy. So the seller carried back 90% of the mortgage and then we brought in pri private money for the rest of it. So that's where we're at. We don't nor normally partner. Um, we let people lend us money and we, we give them a return on their money. Nice, nice. And as far as deal sourcing, you know, the farm, the mobile home park, when you were doing flips, uh, are you still using the same methodology, mailers, brokers? What are you doing to deal source right now? 
everything. I mean, we are always talking to people, letting them know what we're looking to buy. That way, when they see it, they're sending it to us. We will always pay a fee or whatever people want for the deal. If the numbers work for us, we don't care how much the other person makes. You know, last month we paid a wholesaler almost $50,000 for that mobile home park. And other people were like, oh my gosh, $50,000. Should they really be making that much? Of course, the numbers work for me. What do you mean? Should they be making that much? That's fantastic for everybody. So, uh, you know, that was, that's that old scarcity mindset that I had dealt with, you know, years ago. But yeah, we're looking on social media. I One of my best deals, this was a crazy deal, I found on Craigslist. Nice. I literally, it was, I don't know, it was like three years ago and I was caught up on everything and I was praying and I was like, God, I feel like I have enough time to work on something new. If there's something you want for me, you know, show it to me. And I literally got on Craigslist and found it was the first deal we actually ever wholesaled. And we made over a hundred grand on wholesaling it in three months. Nice. Craigslist. <laughs> you know, so deals are everywhere. Deals are on the MLS. People are all the time like, you can't find stuff on the MLS. We have a piece of land right now that's set on the MLS for three years, three years. All right. I didn't even want to buy it. I was just doing a 1031 exchange and I was like, you know, we can make it work. Well, we will end up netting over a million dollars on that project, that MLS deal that's not a deal that nobody could find that's set there for three three years. <laughs> deals are everywhere because deals are not found, they're made. I agree. I totally, totally agree. That's amazing, Jennifer. Um, I've been seeing you on Facebook, as I mentioned, right after the event, all of a sudden you're popping up everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're going on all these different masterminds and events. Please share with the audience how important is it to have a mastermind have a coach, go through the self. How important is that? Gosh, it is so important. Like I said, I had this, you know, I am the gospel mindset whenever I worked for the government. So I really struggled in sales. And the turning point for me, where I went past struggling to pay my bills to being able to take my kids on vacation was when I hired a coach. I hired a coach and I'm sure you know the company uh, that sells books doors to door to door Southwestern. They've got a coaching company. All right. I'm sure you know which one I'm talking about. And uh, I I ended up being one of their longest students because I'm a slow learner. And I, I think I was coached for four or five years on sales and I became the top salesperson in our insurance brokerage. And then I, I, use those techniques still today. And so after I quit my W2 job and got full-time in real estate investing, I was like, I need another coach. I need someone to help keep me motivated, teach me new, you know, techniques and tools. Cause even like reverse engineering your income to figure out like how many dials you need to make a day and sales, like stuff like that, or it's just really valuable to learn. And then I learned about masterminds and masterminds are, for instance, one of them that I'm in, there's 200 members. And so instead of one coach, I have 200 people that can help me and want to help me. And I consider my friends. The only reason we could buy that trailer park is because I know at least five people that I can call right now that will answer and tell me everything I need to know about a trailer park because they own hundreds or thousands of doors. And that's because I'm in a mastermind. You know, I'm in multiple, I'm in four masterminds right now, but that's just one of them. Four going on at the same time. 
Yes. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, Jennifer. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, nothing's going to get in your way. It sounds like the getting the 500,000 square footage of uh, mobile homes. I'm sorry, mobile home storage unit space. That's amazing. That yeah. is amazing. Anything else you want to share with the audience? Uh, anything that you learned over the years? If you were talking maybe to your younger self, anything you would share for the audience or the younger self? Yeah, I will share one of the things that I actually have right here next to me. And since my computer's plugged in, I have to take it off the board. Um, you know, I, the first time I did this in high school and I thought it was silly and a lot of people think it's silly and still don't do it, but it's my vision board. You know, I not only have one that I look at every single day, but I update it regularly. Once I accomplish what's on there, which I do regularly, you know, then I add more things because it's okay to change your mind and for, to want different things as your life changes. And, you know, it's one thing to like want something, but then to actually write it down or have a picture of it and then visualize yourself and give yourself the affirmations, it's really going to accelerate your ability to grow. So having an abundance mindset, having a, bit, a vision board, being surrounded by people that are performing at a level that you want to perform at, those are all things that really took us far fast. That's awesome. Is there any mantra or morning routine, evening routine that you pretty much do every day? Oh, you're going to think I'm crazy, but I actually am a very mantra-like person. I try to get up, you know, I don't get up at the same time every morning, but because I have to have eight hours of sleep. Otherwise, like I literally start shutting down physically. And, but when I do get up, which is before, you know, 630 every morning, I... Yeah. My day is so structured, you know, I go through and like I do my reading, exercising, get my kids ready for school. Um, I, I do like the 75 hard. I'm doing that right now, along with another challenge, along with training for a marathon. So I work out a lot, you know, I drink a lot of water. I eat specifically. And so, you know, there's room, there's like blocks of time for things I don't have scheduled to be allowed into my day. But for the most part, like my day is very strict, strictly scheduled from the beginning to end, including time with family. Like at six o'clock to eight 30 is my family time. I don't answer my phone. I don't, we don't get on social media. We don't, uh, the kids are always like no screens, no screens, because during that time, you know, they're at the age, my kids are seven, nine and 15. They're at the age where, you know, they want to be on their screens too. So it's good for them and good for us. We got to play games, you know, do fun stuff like that all the way until bedtime. And I don't watch TV. I literally have not watched the news in probably 20 years. Now, I've, maybe I've been at someone's house and it's been on. So like I've seen the news before, but uh, it's just not part of my schedule and we don't watch shows or anything, <clears throat> excuse me, like that either, because it's just um, garbage for the most part, unfortunately. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, one last question and we could wrap it up. You said you were high analytical, right? Yes. You studied the market before you jumped in the market about 10 years. Where do you think this market is going? If you had a little piece of that crystal ball, where, where do you think it's going? You know, I really worry about our monetary system. So, uh, you know, if you're the type of person on a fixed income and living off your 
um, savings, you should be concerned. Uh, I'm concerned for those people, my parents, grandparents, people like that who are only going to make a set amount, but their expenses are going to continue to rise. So real estate to me is one of the most stable assets. We have some money in stocks that we're going to end up pulling out. We are somewhat invested into cryptocurrencies. I do think that is definitely something that you want to be paying attention to. Um, there's so much volatility right now, obviously, so people are scared of it, but that's where the big money is made in the high risk situation. So I wouldn't put more money into cryptocurrency than you can afford to lose, maybe 5% of your net worth. Um, but at some point, it's going to become more stable and more trustworthy and, and more widely used. And, uh, you know, that's just the way things are going. So I would just... Uh, you know, I would recommend people that have cash in the bank to be looking for other ways to secure that so that it's just not going down in value so quickly to where they're going to have to go back to work or go on government, you know, get government help if there is any, you know. Right, right. Wow. We're thinking totally along the same lines. So really appreciate your comment there. Uh, best way to get a hold of you, anything you're looking to promote? Um, you know, as, as a millennial, I am on Facebook, <laughs> so you can find me there. I, you know, most of our businesses have a Facebook page that you can follow to kind of see what's happening there. I am on LinkedIn. I don't get on there very often. Instagram, I still struggle to figure out how to use. So um, that's the best way to reach me. And, you know, right now I'm looking for self-storage deals. So if anyone knows of something off market, uh, I love to analyze and underwrite self-storage. I would be happy to help somebody if they didn't know how to underwrite self-storage just, you know, for the practice. So find me on Facebook, send me a message that doesn't look like spam because I get a, somebody trying to sell me leads every single day. And I'm like, ah, which of these are real people and which aren't? Or, uh, 10 cents, you get, get a million followers. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I, but I'm almost full, so I'm good. <laughs> well, Jennifer, it's been awesome having you on our show. Thank you so much. We wish you well. Thank you, Joe. Wow. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I hope you learned as much as I did or more. So guys, look at the comment thread. If you've seen something or heard something, want to learn more about something, please put it on the comment link below. If you're not a subscriber yet, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. Go ahead and smash that bell to hear the latest and greatest on the show. Follow me on Facebook, follow me on Instagram. I'm putting this channel together to hopefully add incredible value to you. And if you wanna learn more about investing, you're new to investing, I highly recommend this book, Flex with a Plex. Also this book, if you're having some challenges, as you can see, everybody on the show had some kind of adversity, including yours truly. So I shared a lot of that on Make It A Comeback, giving you some incredible tips to make a comeback. So get either one, Plex with a Plex, or Make It A Comeback. If you wanna get more tips, go ahead and go to joemendoza.com. Again, subscribe, share, like, Make a comment below. I really, really appreciate you. Want to add incredible value and wish you all the best in your success in real estate and in life. Take care. Our company is not responsible for the success or failure of your business decisions relating to any information presented by our company or our company programs, products, and or services.